Hi, I'm Rochelle. I'm doing the Bible reading tonight. It comes from Matthew 6, 25 to 34. And you can look it up in your Bibles or iPads or whatever, but it's on the screen as well. So. My Bible titles it, um, Jesus Teaches About Worry. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I'm on. Hello, everyone. Most of you know me. I'm Brendan. I am Sunnybank District Baptist Church, most recently adopted student in training for ministry. So thank you for adopting me. <laughs> All right. Um, and just a quick note, um, for interest's sake. The Bible version that I use to do this study is very, very similar to that, but it will use the word anxious instead of worry. And I like the word anxious more because anxious, I think, lines up better with what we experience. Um, we have lots of anxiety medication and anxiety disorders, and anxiety is something that we're very aware of in society. So when you hear me say anxiety or anxious, I am talking about worry. Um, let me pray real quick, and then we'll get into it. Father God, Thank you for the opportunity to gather as your community here. Thank you to give us, for giving us the Bible as our teacher. And may your Holy Spirit teach us tonight and evermore. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Cool. It begins with an unpleasant tightness in your chest. An uncomfortable feeling that seems to crawl around inside your skin when you're reminded that you have a bill to pay that you can't afford to pay right now. Or maybe there's an essay that's too big and you haven't started it, but at some point you're going to have to think about it because if you don't, you'll fail that whole class. Or maybe you have a talk to give or a presentation or a sermon and you're just about sure that you're going to bore everyone to tears because you are not funny enough or clever enough to make the material interesting. Whatever it is, you know it's coming and there is nothing that you can do about it. It's a threat too big to ignore, 
but far too far away, too strong, too unknown to do anything about. It's this anxiety that is one of the most powerful forces to break the human heart. And if you never master it, it will follow you around for the rest of your life. Funny that Bruce should mention the mid-70s. Let me tell you a story, a story of a story, a story from an age which should respond to my clicker but doesn't. from an age of roller discos (laughs) and glam rock and aviator sunglasses and a Movember that seemed to last 10 years. The Vietnam War enters its final tragic year. Australia's Prime Minister, the Honourable Gough Whitlam, leads a government so divided it makes the political circus of the last year seem downright civil. And an upcoming young director named Steven Spielberg is having a great deal of unexpected trouble. He's filming what will later become his first blockbuster hit. It revolves around a fictional holiday destination, a beach island named Amity Island, plagued by attacks from a monstrous super shark big enough to bite holes in boats and swallow swimmers with equal ease. But the star of this production, the mechanical shark, continually malfunctions gives the film crew no end of constant grief. How are they supposed to terrify moviegoers if they can't get a handful of scenes where the shark lunges out of the water and snaps its teeth and acts like it's alive? But they couldn't. But Mr. Spielberg is a master of his craft, and he realizes what really frightens people is not a shark. What frightens people is that there might be a shark. So they rewrote the script. And now if you've ever seen this movie, you know that we barely see the shark at all. What we get is the assurance that there might be a shark. There's a dark shape moving under the water. A menacing, never-forgotten two-tone soundtrack. Dun-dun. Dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-
And this spawned a legacy of thriller movies after it, exploiting the same concept, often a human stalker, or better yet, some unknown alien monster that you don't ever really see, maybe a flash of scales or a slimy tail as it clatters through the walls. Even my beloved Caped Crusader works on this same principle, though the fear is, of course, reversed. What's fun about following the Dark Knight around is that it's the crooks who are experiencing that terrible fear of the unknown, what's lurking in the darkness for them. But today, the anxieties we deal with are not often monsters, but they are uncertainties about tomorrow. Will my grade point average be high enough to get me into a master's program? Will I know anyone at this upcoming function, or will they think badly of me if I don't go? What if we don't like each other in five years after we're married and it's too late to back out? Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, those are much more realistic fears than sharks and monsters and Batman, and you'd be 100% correct. But the only problem is the human body only has a certain number of tricks it can play when dealing with stress, too, in this case. Now, if you are shocked or terrified, your adrenal glands located mm, here, just above your kidneys, if I'm poking right, release adrenaline, adrenaline most of us know about. Essentially, this will briefly supercharge your body to give you a chance to get away from whatever it is that is frightening you. You see the shark, adrenaline kicks in, you swim away as fast as you can. But if you're simply anxious that there might be a shark, then those same adrenaline glands do something different. They release a chemical called cortisol. Hello, cortisol. <laughs> now, cortisol's main function is to divert your body's energy to your mind. It helps improve your mem memory, your memory and your thinking power so that you can better deal with the source of your stress. But in the case of the shark, dealing with the source of your stress is getting out of the water. We live in the 21st century. We swim around in an ocean of anxieties, most of which we cannot simply get out of. We're in the mortgage for another 30 years or in school for another five. Most of us are in situations we can't simply choose to stop doing the things that are making us anxious. We must worry about what tomorrow might bring. And because there's nothing we can do to make these things go away, all our increased brain power does is allow us to worry more fiercely about these problems and develop more detailed fantasies on how horrible we'll feel when it all falls apart in our hands. And that stresses us out more. So our body produces cortisol, which stresses us out more, which produces cortisol. You can see the problem. And that brain power isn't even free. It comes out of the body's digestive processes, which causes us to lose or gain weight but feel more exhausted either way. Or it comes out of our immune system, harming our ability to fight off illness. And then we have literally worried ourselves sick. Now, were the folks in Jesus' day as anxious as we are now? Maybe not. But they were anxious enough for him to have touched on the subject several times in his ministry. And throughout the gospel, he gives his solution to overcome the worry and anxiety and fear of tomorrow. Later on in the gospel, from when we read, Jesus tells the parable of the sower, one of the most powerful teaching stories he will ever use. And part of his intention is to display the nature of anxiety so that we can see it for what it is, 
He talks about a sower, a farmer, scattering seeds in four different kinds of soil. One of the soils, the good soil, allows the seed to grow up and multiply. The other three batches of soil and seeds are respectively devoured by the birds, scorched by the sun, or choked by weeds and thorns. Now Jesus goes on to explain that the seed represents the word of God, the truth of God. And these soils represent three things, three kinds of hearts, that stop the truth of God from penetrating into our hearts and growing into something fruitful and beautiful. And the first soil represents the devil coming in and snatching the word away like those birds taking away the seed. The second soil represents the sun and persecution on believers. Oh, has the sun representing persecution on believers because of the word? And those believers are attacked or imprisoned and they suffer and are tortured and then because of their suffering, they fall away to escape the suffering. And the third soil, most interestingly, in Matthew 13, 22... As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, this word cares in the original Greek text, in the words it was written in, is the same root of the word anxious or worry in the passage we read today. And you might have noticed it came up a lot. In fact, it featured in verses 25, 27, 28, 31, and twice in 34. Anxious, anxious, anxious. The same concept as the seed in the third soil choked by thorns. So to be entirely clear about what I am suggesting to you right now, I am telling you that according to the Son of God, cortisol, or a life lived swimming in it, ranks alongside being physically tortured and the actions of Lucifer as a threat to the fruitful faith in your heart. Anxiety ranks alongside physical torture and the actions of Lucifer as a threat to the fruitful faith in your heart. Jesus puts anxiety on equal footing with persecution and the devil of hell as enemies of the word of God. And it's important to see anxiety for what it is before we study these verses in detail. Because it's very easy to take this passage too lightly. Kind of like an affirming, don't worry, be happy, fluffy sort of message. Meant to soothe some itches, but not really have any practical application for real people. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not of more value than... Are you not of more value than they? Pretty sweet deal. So we have Jesus' word then, that if we stop going to our jobs and using that money to buy food, our meals will just divinely manifest in our pantries and fridges. And surely as the seeds show up in nature for the birds, so too God will provide for us. Could God divinely produce food for his people? Of course he could. He's God and he has several times in the Bible. But is this what Jesus is saying here? No. And if any of the farmers went home from this lesson and gave up reaping and gathering into barns, I think they would have been sorely disappointed because they had missed the real message. Let's step through the passage. In verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, we mustn't read this too simply. 
Jesus is not saying there's more to life than food and clothes. They don't matter. Jesus is saying God has given you life, your whole life. It's a bigger deal. There's more to it than food and clothing. Food and water and clothing are just a small part of the greater picture. Do you really think he'd forget to feed and clothe you if he first gave you the mouth to eat the food and the body to wear the clothes? We can have security because this is part of his plan. He's planned the whole party. He has not forgotten the catering and the party hats. Now, when I first got my driver's license and my little pea plates to put in the windows, my mum and dad gave me that car, the car I learned to drive in, a very hardworking 10-year-old three-cylinder gem of a car, 178 FPE BP. And that car meant a lot to me because it gave me freedom. I could go where I liked. I could have a job and I could study without the trouble of having to rely on public transport. And it was doubly important because I was the first in my group of friends to have both a car and a license. And if you were that guy or girl in your group, you know how central you suddenly become to the lives of those around you. But I wasn't terribly good with money or the habits of maintaining a car. But my mother and father loved me, and they wanted me to have a car and the freedom it gives. And to be able to do those things, one needs a car to do. So when my registration payment rolled around like clockwork every year, and I could not afford it because I was broke, we always worked out something together to keep that car on the road. And even though he told me to check the oil and water regularly, my father would check the oil and water regularly himself. Because he knew that most of the time I wouldn't. He'd given me a car and he loved me too much to let me wreck it by failing to take care of the little things. So he was personally invested in those little things. And to this day, he regularly asks, now, Bren, have you checked your oil and water recently? As if I still needed the help. Which reminds me. Well, just as my earthly father and my earthly mother, a wonderful father and mother, and wouldn't let their gift of a car be ruined by something as trivial as a funnel full of Valvoline, so too our Heavenly Father is a wonderful God and won't let his gift of life be ruined by something as trivial as food or clothes. He's personally invested in the small stuff. And so we can afford to feel secure even when it looks like tomorrow might hurt. So when we look at verse 26... We can see that Jesus isn't saying all of your harvesting is a waste of time. You should act like the birds and not harvest. He's saying, look at the birds. They're not even trying, and they get what they need from God. They do what is natural for them, like working is natural for us, and God provides for them. And if he provides for them doing nothing, and he values us more, why should we think that he will not provide for us? He's clearly providing for the birds because they aren't doing much planning for the future themselves so we can be secure because we are more important than the birds. We are in the plan. And in verse 28, similarly, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
Now, Jesus is talking about clothing and toiling and spinning to make the cloth. This is traditionally a woman's craft in the time in which Jesus was teaching it, much like reaping and gathering into barns was traditionally a man's work. So it may be that Christ was first addressing the men and then the women giving an example for one and then the other. But even if he wasn't, the message is the same. If the lilies of the field, if the flowers are clothed in beauty for doing nothing, just because they grow out of God's green earth, shouldn't we feel secure that God will provide for us the people of God, when we are toiling and spinning, working for those clothes. But the heart of the message in this passage comes at the end in verses 33 and 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This promise, this security offered by Jesus, only applies if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious. So if you do not seek first the kingdom of God, then you have a very good reason to be anxious. If you do not seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if your first priority is not following God's plan for your life, then you're living like God isn't really God or like he isn't really there. You're living as if you just happened to turn up on this planet when you did and you have about 80 years to juice as much fun out of it as you can and it might end at any minute. And even then you have no idea what happens after death. Maybe you go up, maybe you go down, maybe you don't go anywhere at all. If the idea of a short life and no certainty about what comes after makes you anxious, good. It's supposed to. That's a shark in the water that people everywhere on this planet have to worry about. And people swim away from it as fast as they can by distracting themselves with things like work or fun or addictions or relationships or anything else. But dedication to those things is just treading water. They can't remove the anxiety. They don't have the power to. Only one thing can, and Jesus gives us the formula. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, the final half of that line is something we have to wrestle with. And all these things will be added to you. And we must be careful with it, because out of lines like this come some very strange, very wrong teachings, which will suggest things like, Seeking first the kingdom is just prayer, so we have an open channel to God for all we could desire because all things that we are anxious about will be added to us. Then God will always deliver what we ask him for. And if he doesn't, then there's something wrong with us, something wrong with our relationship with God. And that's simply not true. Maybe your experience is that you have received everything you have asked for when you have prayed. That's wonderful, but that's not the experience of most of us. Most of us have been disappointed when God hasn't delivered something we wanted. And I feel like a lot of believers, ironically enough, develop what I'd like to call prayer anxiety. Prayer anxiety kicks in when you're afraid to pray for something because you suspect that God won't give it to you. And you don't want to make God look bad. Just because your crummy prayer wasn't good enough to get the job done. So you pack the language of your prayer 
with no expectation of getting an answer and giving it lots of little escape hatches so the Almighty does not feel pressured when reading it. Dear God, please, if it's in your will, just help me through this situation I'm in, in your own time, as you design, if you can work it into the plan somehow, even if I'm very comfortable with the idea of that help being completely unseen. Just bless me in a really, really subtle way. Amen. And this, I think, is the wrong view of prayer. Jesus does not teach that God is a cosmic genie who will grant our particularly faithful wishes or witches. And Jesus does not teach that God is so fickle or so weak that we can only offer cringing, apologetic requests for help with no expectation that we will get it. Think for a moment of the Lord's Prayer. Now, I went to a Catholic primary school, so I have this committed to memory with these and thous and thys and all. Now, lots of us have those lines in our heads, but do we understand what we're praying? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, do we expect that unless we pray this prayer with a sufficient number of people, a sufficient number of times, God's name will be less hallowed or that his kingdom will not come or his will will not be done? Of course not. Of course not. God's holiness and his kingdom and his will are not confined by or activated by our prayers. God will make those things happen because he chooses to and because he is the Lord. So why does Jesus ask us to pray them? Because we are not praying to make things happen. We are praying to place ourselves in obedience to God's will. Our prayers are not how we twist God's arm so that he will give us what we want. Our prayers are how we submit to God and ask his Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we can want what he gives. And if we pray expecting that we will have enough faith that God will be obliged to reward us, or if we pray expecting we have so little faith he couldn't possibly reward us, then we're getting prayer back to front. Prayer is asking God to make us want what he gives. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, he's teaching us the same thing he's teaching in today's passage in Matthew 6, and the same thing he warns about with the third seed in the parable of the sower. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us only what we require in your plan for right now, and not as much as we might like to soothe our anxieties. And as you become accustomed to praying like that, as you find that you submit yourself to God's plan rather than asking him to work yours into his, then you'll become less anxious. You'll find that you worry less about tomorrow because it's in God's hands. Do you still plan to pay off the mortgage? Of course you do. But you don't lose sleep over it anymore because even if you can't, you're seeking first the kingdom of God. And however it shakes out, we know that the Heavenly Father values us and is accomplishing something through us. Whatever dark shadows might be moving in the water, whatever deadline or difficulty may be looming tomorrow, it cannot ruin God's plan. And if his plan is your plan, 
then there's no shark in the ocean of anxieties worth worrying about. Speaking personally, through my late teens and early 20s, I was quietly inclined to anxiety and depression. I suppose I still am in some part. But I was blessed when God responded to my prayers with a particular word of comfort. You see, my life is marked by things that I have half accomplished. Right out of high school, I studied a Bachelor of Counseling, but couldn't hack it, and bailed out halfway through the course. I moved on to study social work, couldn't hack it, bailed out halfway through the course. Worked a job for a few years that I didn't like, left before I got very far. Studied IT, a dual diploma, got half of each of them, so it's almost a full one. But no, that's two halves, that's not the same as a whole. In the past, I have been prone to become enthusiastic about a direction, then lose the fire for it and move on. And I was struck by an awful thought that my life was going to be defined by the things that I didn't achieve. And that terrified me. What if I never find something I'm good at? What if this is all there is, doing a couple of years of something and then moving on and starting from zero again? And that thought tormented me for years until one night God filled my heart with the simplest answer in the form of a question. Would you be okay with that? And I had to stop and think. Suppose my life continued as it was and there was another 60 years of mediocre employment and study and no fancy degree on the wall and never enough money to buy a car that wasn't 10 years old. But then I know God. And I know that after that, there's a wonderful life for me in paradise, in the presence of my Savior. And stopping to realize that was so freeing, I can hardly describe it. And once I had come to terms with that, God upped the ante and touched my heart with a new message. What if it was less than that? What if there was no wall to hang your no diplomas on? What if you wind up homeless and poor And that becomes your life. And I dwelled on the possibility until I could say, well, I would hardly like it. It wouldn't be pleasant. But if it's God's will, I am prepared to submit to it. Because I know that after that, there is a wonderful life in paradise in the presence of my Savior. And we stepped through this together little by little until we were as far as we could go. And the final question was, what if your life was sickness and solitude and poverty and no earthly consolation? And I knew that I'd be miserable for that life. But I felt that if it was God's will, I could submit to it. Because I don't have that anxiety anymore about what comes after. And once I was okay with that, I've had ups and downs, but I've never felt crushed or caged in my life about what might happen or what I might accomplish tomorrow or for the rest of my life. Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious enough for itself. Sufficient is for the day is its own trouble. The passage doesn't show Jesus saying that we must never worry about anything. It's natural to worry. God built our bodies, even the little adrenaline glands that blast us with cortisol under stress over and over. But it's not natural to live under oppression from worries and anxieties about tomorrow. Living a life treading water in an ocean of fear, For what comes next is a cage around your faith as real and as damaging as living in a prison cell or in the hands of the enemy. But if you seek first the kingdom of God, you don't have to tread water. Psalm 18 says it well in these words. He sent from on high 
He took me. He drew me out of the many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. If you see anxiety for what it is, a real threat to your faith, and you recognize that you can be secure in God's plan, then you are equipped to seek first the kingdom of God. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you need to know that seeking first the kingdom starts with him. It starts with confessing our sins, which keep us apart from God and his kingdom, and with accepting that Jesus paid the price for those sins on the cross so that we could seek the kingdom and find it. And if that's something you've never done, but you'd like to talk about it, I'll be here at the front of the church after the service, and there's literally nothing in the world I would rather talk about. Please come find me. If you do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you find yourself paddling around in an ocean of anxieties, then these verses we've read give us license to have freedom from tomorrow. Freedom from those anxieties. Whatever tomorrow looks like, whatever it brings, it doesn't need to cage your heart or strangle your faith. Relying on Jesus' instructions and seeking first the kingdom of God is a spiritual habit that you need to practice and cultivate and grow. When you feel that tightness in your chest, stop and pray. Submit to his will. This is what it means to seek the kingdom first, to rest our worries in his hands and be drawn out of the many waters. And if you establish that as a habit, your faith will no longer be choked by the cares of this world. And you will find it easier and easier to seek first the kingdom. And when you can do that, all these things will be added to you. Let's pray really quickly. Father God, thank you that you are the creator of all. You gave us our lives. You gave us everything. And we can be secure in the plan that you have for us. Help us to submit to your will, to rest ourselves in security with you and every day depend on you and seek first your kingdom. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.